Vegcast is back, and it's better than ever. Vegcast. I mean, better, of course. Vegcast. A full menu from first to last. Vegcast. Yes, Vegcast is back after a one-month hiatus. We took an end of summer vacation, but back for September with Dr. Neil Barnard on Vegcast. 119. Dr. Barnard, of course, you've heard him previously uh, on some VegCasts uh, talking about different things. This time out, we're going to be talking about the brain. Uh, he has a new book called Power Foods for the Brain about how uh, different foods can have different effects on the brain, and uh, we'll be going into that. This is an interview that I did with him a couple months back for uh, my V for Veg column, and uh, you just have so much space, just a, a little amount of space to convey a lot of the stuff that he was talking about, and I couldn't get a lot of it in there, and I asked if we could run this as a VegCast interview, uh, so some of the uh, the great stuff that I couldn't include, we uh, we could get out there. So we're, that's what we're going to do uh, this time out, and uh, we also have a science fact that pertains to the brain, and we will have a track from a Philadelphia band uh, that I told you about a couple of VegCasts ago, but we didn't have a chance to play on that podcast that's every other day uh pretty good uh young kids here uh, making philly proud and you'll hear that uh, all that's going to be coming up so please sit back and relax and crank up your mp3 player as we deliver to you this 119th episode of All right, VegCast is sponsored by Tofurky, the makers of delicious, innovative, and affordable meat alternatives from non-GMO organic soy since 1980. And uh, we're going to go right now to this interview. Hope you are familiar with uh, Dr. Barnard, the head of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. You should check out uh, some of his other uh, interviews on VegCast. He is a fond of information and uh, also he's uh, always kind of ahead of the curve on uh, a lot of these things. So let's go to that now and hear what Dr. Neil Barnard has to say about power foods for the brain. Let's start with the, uh, the place where you start in terms of uh, things to look at uh, in detail, which uh, you went into metals. Uh, the different metals that uh, we either do or don't need, and uh, there's it's, it's kind of scary there that there's a lot of uh, metal entering our bodies from different uh, from different places, and uh, is something that some of them other than aluminum we actually need some of, and then others we're, we're getting uh, more than we need, others others we're getting some and we don't need any. So let me just ask, just at the outset, uh, should people like start just being completely paranoid about metals in their environment? Yes, <laughs> it should be. Um, when you look into the brain of a person who is developing Alzheimer's disease, one sees beta amyloid plaques, these right. little meatballs in the brain. And if you were to dissect them, you would find that there are traces of iron and copper in particular and also aluminum. And you need a little bit of iron for hemoglobin. Without it, your red blood cells wouldn't be red, but more importantly, they wouldn't be able to carry oxygen. 
Uh, the problem is that in the same way as a cast iron pan can rust, the iron in your brain can oxidize. And as that happens, it releases, the iron causes the formation of free radicals. And free radicals are like sparks that singe their way through the connections from one brain cell to the next. Copper, same story. You need a little bit of copper for enzyme function. However, many people get too much, and copper corrodes in the very same way that iron does. A shiny penny starts to turn dark pretty soon after it leaves the factory. And as copper oxidizes, it releases free radicals as well. So you need traces of metal, but unlike many vitamins, like vitamin B6 or vitamin B12, where overdose is really not possible. You, you can eat a humongous amount of those without any, any adverse effect. With metals, if you tip even a little bit into excess, they can be harmful. Mm-hmm. And how many Americans are eating meat, which is a big source of both iron and copper? Right. Or shellfish, lobster, for example, or liver, which is just loaded with copper, and they are overdosing their body on it, or for that matter, taking multiple vitamins. The vitamins themselves are fine, but the, but the vitamin pill also includes metals that you don't need. Right. So those are all, that's all uh, part of the problem. Well, let me just ask specifically about iron, um, because people who eat vegan are, one of the things, the next thing after where do you get your protein is, but you must be so low on iron because you don't eat beef. Um, and so a, a lot of vegans, I think, uh, are like very, you know, try to be very conscious about uh, making sure to get enough iron. And, you know, it, it seems like a little we're, we're tasked with with walking this tightrope that we have to be sure to get enough iron, but but uh, not not too much. Whereas, uh, you know, the, the meat eaters, they're just doing so much damage here and there and everywhere that they don't care <laughs> whether too much iron is another thing that's uh, that's hurting them. And, I, I mean, you saw, Dallas, the uh, the recent interviews with uh, Bill Clinton uh, in a- AARP, and uh, I forget if that was the only one that he did, and, and there, it was written up in different places. But uh, the point is, you know, he's going along about all of the great things about a vegan or a plant-based eating style. And it says, well, once a week I have some salmon uh, and some eggs to just to make sure that I'm, I'm uh, getting iron and, and omega-3s. Uh, so is that is that really something that, uh, you know, that people should look at as, as I mean, are, are they really, you know, at risk to the point that, People need to pay attention to that with a with like a magnifying glass, or is there a more uh, you know a, a way to kind of just sail gently between the rocks of okay. <laughs> on either side? Yeah, well, it, that's a great question, Ben. Um, and let me be, be clear about it: a vegan diet makes iron balance really easy, and it's the safest and healthiest way to go. When we do research studies and we introduce vegan diets to people who are trying to lose weight or improve diabetes or get their cholesterol down or other other goals, we find something that's a bit surprising. We track everybody's nutrition in great detail before and after they make the diet change. How much protein do they get? How much calcium? How much iron? How much vitamin B12? Everything else. 
Um, and what we find is that when people begin vegan diets, their iron intake actually rises slightly on average. Mm-hmm. That person might think, how can that be? Well, if you do the arithmetic, you're subtracting the meat sources of iron, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you are adding vegetable sources of iron. So green leafy vegetables and beans are surprisingly high in iron so that when such that when a person actually switches from a the omnivorous diet to a vegan diet, their iron intake actually rises a little bit. However, the form of iron is entirely non-heme iron, as, it, as you know, right. in green vegetables and beans. It's all non-heme iron. And what that means is it's a form of iron that the body can absorb more if it needs more, and, and it absorbs less if you're already iron overloaded. Mm-hmm. So a vegan diet, getting, getting all your iron from plant sources, is perfect because it helps you exclude it if, you're, if you've got excess, it helps you include more or absorb more if you're running low. Right, okay. Now, if, if on the other hand, a person decided, well, I'm going to get my iron from meat sources. Well, the problem is that's heme iron. It, it, it's a mixture in the meats, but it has, there's a lot of heme iron in the meat. And that tends to be too absorbable so that people tend to run into iron overload. And that's where you start talking about heart disease and Alzheimer's disease related to iron excess. Right. So okay. a person on a plant-based diet does really not have to worry about getting adequate iron. As long as you're getting green leafy vegetables and beans or other legumes as part of your routine, you're getting the iron you need and you're getting it in a form where if you if you erred on getting it a little bit too much, your body would exclude the excess. So you're not failing you know, between the rocks. You've got a wide open pathway okay. uh, of great safety. Great. All right. Well, what, uh, let's uh, just touch on the the question of fats because that's something that uh, is always a hot topic. Good fats, bad fats, uh, omega threes, fish, and plant sources of those. Um, is there? Can you give one like sweeping, <laughs> just uh, kind of rationale for concentrating on you know getting your plat- fats from plant sources and or once you're if you were already concentrating on that. You know, is there, you know, do you also have to start being very careful about plants with saturated fat uh, versus monounsaturated? Well, the first key is to get away from animal products, dairy especially, but also meat. Mm-hmm. They are very high in the saturated fats that have been, in my view, clearly linked to Alzheimer's disease, but also to brain problems that come much earlier in life than Alzheimer's disease tends to. If you're, you're eating vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans, you'll get traces of the fat that a person needs. You'll get traces of omega-3 fatty acids. And as long as you're not getting a lot of the competing fats, I'm thinking about uh, fats used in frying, for example, which, which uh, you don't need, uh, you, you're going to be fine. You, so... You do need a certain amount of, of omega-3. You will get it from green vegetables and from beans and from fruits. Uh, we don't think of these foods as having fats in them, but they do have have them. Uh, mm-hmm. Somewhere around 8% of the calories in typical green leafy vegetables are fat. Uh-huh. And uh, much of that is omega-3. And so those are the sources that are natural for us. Now, if a person wants to increase their omega-3 intake for whatever reason, you will find DHA supplements at the store from vegan sources. They're made from algae. 
So you can go ahead and have them if you want, but I don't think most people need them. Okay. Well, uh, let me just touch on that um, because the the question of supplementing versus the question of uh, eating food as, as people get older. Uh, I mean, I'm getting older myself, and I'm I you know I take a, a B12 supplement, but more and more the older you get, the more it seems there's a general uh, popular concept that you're going to need to supplement. You're going to there are going to be just things that you have to take care of by just getting an extra in a, in a pill. Is that really, you know, if they're, if they're just eating a plant-based diet, will they be able to, uh, to credibly get all of the, everything that they're going to continue to need from those foods or should they look at specific things to supplement? There are only two supplements that I would recommend. The first is vitamin B12, which mm -hmm. you need for healthy nerves and healthy blood. Mm-hmm. And unlike other vitamins, it's not made by animals or plants. It's made by bacteria. Right. And some people will speculate that the bacteria in the soil or on vegetables or on our fingers or even in our mouth might produce the 2.4 micrograms of B12 that we need. Um, I don't think that's a reliable source, at least not in the world of modern hygiene. Um, there is a little bit of B12 in animal products, typically because the bacteria in a cow's gut made it and so it seeps into the flesh. However, many people do not absorb that B12 very effectively. Um, it's adherent to the protein, and for a lot of folks, they, they don't remove it very well, and they tend to run low regardless of, of what they're eating. Plus, if you're eating animal products, you get a lot of undesirables along, along with it. So the U.S. government recommended a long time ago that everybody over age 50 should be taking a supplement of vitamin B12 not relying on food sources. Now, the supplement could either be a pill or it could be fortified foods, like many cereals or soy milk are fortified with B12. All of these supplemental sources are, are highly absorbable, even without, uh, e even in people who have trouble absorbing B12 from, from foods. So when this would come up as a person on acid-blocking drugs, antacids or, or protein, or proton blockers, um, a person on uh, metformin for diabetes, or anybody over the age of 50, uh, their absorption is going to be reduced. So taking a pill there makes good sense. Okay. Uh, the second, second one is vitamin D, which you actually don't need if you're getting adequate sunlight. Sunlight on the skin makes all the vitamin D you would need, but if you're inside writing a column for a newspaper all right. day long, <laughs> you're not getting the vitamin D that you need. And so a supplement is good. Uh, up to about 2,000 international units a day is safe. And it helps your body absorb calcium. It reduces cancer risk. I don't recommend any other supplements for routine use. And a couple of them I specifically recommend against. Beta carotene and vitamin E are should not be taken as supplements. They both interfere with uh, the absorption of other parts of the diet. So okay. I would encourage people not to take them. Well, let's uh, let's just uh, pick up on vitamin E because that's uh, something that that looms large uh, as a uh, as a beneficial uh, constituent of of your diet. And what so uh, if somebody just says, "Man, I got to really pump up the vitamin E," what's the first thing that they should do? Okay, um, it, it's a good idea to pump up the vitamin E uh, at least a bit because it's an antioxidant. Those free radical sparks that I mentioned earlier are neutralized by vitamin E. It's sort of your natural fire extinguisher. Um, there are traces of it in spinach, in mangoes, and a number of other foods, but it's 
where you really find concentrated vitamin E is in seeds and nuts. Uh, and uh, a lot of us have a tendency to overdo it with these things. If I buy a pack of cashews, I guarantee you it's going to be gone in about 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want it again the next day. And, right. um, so what I, what I suggest people do instead is to have about an ounce of these per day. You just pour the seeds or nuts into your, the palm of your hand. Once it hits your fingers, that's more than an ounce. So ah, okay. about an ounce a day is all you need. And instead of swallowing it, what you do instead is crumble it up in your hand and put it on your salad. So mm-hmm. you're using it as an ingredient, not as a snack. And right. that will tend to prevent you from overdosing on it. Okay, great. Um, I, might, I might mention just quickly that there are eight different natural forms of vitamin E that are in seeds and nuts. They all have biological roles. But if I got vitamin E from a pill, it has one or maybe two forms, and they tend to uh, reduce the absorption of others uh, from your diet. So that's why we suggest not using vitamin E as a supplement, but getting it from foods instead. Okay. Um, well, let me just ask about uh, the general uh, kind of a, taking a step back from individual harms and nutrients and looking at, like, from the scope of people's lives, um, you know, people will be coming to your book and this column and everything at kind of different points wherever they're at in their in their life. Some people uh, will be middle-aged, some will be young, some will be old. Uh, and it, it's really uh, a, uh, I think, a heart-rending question is, which you, you kind of address somewhat is, is it too late? If I'm looking at this, I'm 75 and I'm already having memory problems. Uh, you know, is it is it realistic that I'm going to be able to turn that around? Or what if somebody has, you know, if they've already got the signs of Alzheimer's per se, is, is Alzheimer's something that is going to progress, is just going to march onward and you can just you know, try to do whatever you can with, with the symptoms of it, or is it something that you can really kind of beat back? And, and uh, you know, depending on how old you are, is there a point where, you know, people just, uh, well, it's it's just too bad. They're going, to, <laughs> they're going to suffer dementia and just continue to decline, or should people yeah. well, jump in wherever they are? It's a terrific question. Uh, First of all, there have been some interesting studies looking at older folks who are having memory problems and showing that they can benefit from lifestyle interventions. I'll mention a couple of them. At the University of Cincinnati, researchers gave grape juice, ordinary Concord grape juice, to people. Their average age was 78. They gave it to them for three months. They showed that it could noticeably improve their uh, memory and recall. They did the same thing with blueberry juice, same story. Um, and by the way, the reason they picked these products is they are very high in anthocyanins, okay. um, A-N-T-H-O-D-Y-A-N-I-N-S, anthocyanins, which are the, that gives the purplish color to these foods and it's a powerful antioxidant. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are people who are having memory problems, but they got better with the supplementation of natural foods. And, and by the way, I am not suggesting that you just have to have uh, two cups of grape juice every day. That's what they did in the research. But but why not have blueberries on your morning cereal, your morning oatmeal? Why not have some grapes on your your salad in the afternoon? Why not incorporate these foods as part of your routine? A second example, uh, researchers at the University of Illinois 
showed that people who exercised regularly, uh, about a 40-minute brisk walk three times a week, had a reversal of the brain shrinkage, particularly in the area of the hippocampus, which is really the seat of memory. Uh, the hippocampus shrinks in your average person bit by bit each year, and in this case, it actually reversed that brain shrinkage. So a person who may be up in years and is starting to feel that their memory is not what it should be, they can do better. Um, having said that, I do think that there is a point of no return, which is when a person is well into Alzheimer's disease and the brain is being destroyed. I don't know that there's anything that can turn it around. Right. Um, let me add one more thing, though. You don't have to be 70 or 80 to start having brain problems. There are an awful lot of people in their 20s who are living in brain fog much of the time, and they'll say, what is wrong with me? I'm not thinking clearly. I'm not myself. Um, in many cases, these are due to something that is very easily treatable. Um, a lack of sleep is the most common. Stress is also very uh, important. And it could be a medication that a person has started, statin drugs or sleeping pills or antidepressants. All of these things can impair the memory, not for every user, but for many of them. Um, a person whose thyroid level is low, a person whose homocysteine level is too high. These are things that doctors can easily check, and a person who is feeling um, out of sorts can get back into shape quite early. The reason I emphasize this is when we talk about memory, some people feel, well, that's not going to apply to me uh, until I'm way up in years. Not true. It can happen. Uh, it can affect people very early in life. Okay. Well, uh, so I don't want to take up all your time here, but just on the larger issue, just because, uh, uh, there, I mean, you do obviously start the book with a disclaimer about, you know, you should check with your doctor and blah, blah, blah. Um, but... Uh, you must be noticing this as I am that um, after you've been kind of working on this for decades now, the, the medical community is slowly starting to kind of come around to to looking at, you know, the benefits of a, a whole foods plant-based diet in uh, actually uh, combating disease and uh, and preventing disease and so forth. And there have been big things like the Kaiser Permanente recommendations, uh, as well as there's uh, supposedly actual, um, there's a program in New York, in New York uh, hospitals to uh, where doctors are, quote, writing prescriptions uh, for fruits and vegetables. Yeah, uh, sure. Do you, I mean, do you see, am I just uh, looking through rose-colored glasses or are you seeing more of that from where you're standing? You're right. The world is changing. Let me back up, though, um, and just make sure you're clear. The reason that I have that disclaimer in there is not to just try to um, shed responsibility. Um, it really is important for certain people to see their doctor before they make a diet change, and, and that's the most important thing in there. Right. Um, for, pe for people who are on, on medicines for diabetes, when they start a powerful diet of the type that I'm recommending, a, a diet that has zero animal products, that keeps the oils very low, Many of those people are on powerful drugs, but the combination of powerful drugs and a powerful diet means their blood sugar is going to fall, and it, and it can fall really low. Um, and they can get shaky and dizzy, and, and they need to let the doctor know they're going to make the change so that the doctor can right. start taking away the medicine. 
that they no longer need. And of course, the patient is thrilled with that, but they they have to anticipate it. Same story if a person is on blood pressure medicine. This diet is going to help people lose weight. Their blood pressure is going to come down. As that happens, if they're still on powerful blood pressure-lowering drugs, one day they're going to be lying in bed, and they're going to jump out of bed when their alarm goes off, and they're going to get really dizzy because they got no blood pressure, right. <laughs> practically. Um, and it's because of the drugs that they're on. So, so I, I put in those um, comments at the beginning because I want people to be aware of... Um, the, the need to address, to take these things really quite seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to your main point, the world really is changing, and you see it in many different ways. Um, when we look at USDA records, meat eating, when the USDA first started tracking, uh, in 1909, your average American ate 123.9 pounds of meat in a year. Uh, that rose decade by decade. And by the year 2004, it had, it was no longer 123.9, it was 201.5. Wow. It's more than 75 pounds more meat per person per year. Yeah. It's huge. Um, but that was the year it peaked. And it had started to slide. And we're now 6% below that, which is really good. Um, if you look at health food stores, you can see it's true. There really are more people buying buying vegetarian foods and vegan foods than ever before. Health food stores used to be small, neglected places playing folk music. Now they're they're huge, <laughs> and people are buying buying products day by day by day. Um, Bill Clinton, a couple of decades ago, yeah. was known for jogging to fast food chains. Look at the change he's made. Look at the Williams sisters, Serena Williams and Venus Williams, who have gone vegan. So many other athletes and celebrities have done it. And many, many people who are not quite vegan are still throwing out the meat, throwing out the dairy products, and getting most of the way there. So things are changing, but there are a lot of people who know they would do better if they did change, but aren't there yet. This is like the smoker a generation ago who knows that he or she should quit, but just isn't quite there. There are a lot of those folks, and the population overall has a long way to go. But yes, we are in a completely different place now than we were before, and in exactly the same way as the previous generation successfully conquered the tobacco problem to a very great degree, our generation is now doing the exact same thing with food. Right. Okay. Well, that's... That's uh, an inspiring note to end on. So, I, should we end there, or is there anything that I should have asked you? Well, maybe maybe just one thing I would mention. Yeah. And that is, if a person is intrigued and would like to begin, I break that process into two steps to make it easy. And I've never seen anybody who cannot do this. But the first step is you just check out the possibilities. So, rather than adopting a plant-based diet, instead, for the first week or two weeks, you just try out different plant-based foods. So whatever you're eating for breakfast or lunch or dinner, you're also trying out. Um, maybe you haven't made oatmeal in a long time. Well, make make a bowl of oatmeal and make it without milk. Make it with just water and top it with blueberries or walnuts or strawberries or raspberries or cinnamon or raisins or just see what you like. Um, if you haven't ordered a vegan lunch, well, Try out different ones. You're not changing your diet yet, but you're just checking out the possibilities. So if you're at Subway, have a submarine sandwich without the meat and cheese. Right. Have them loaded up with lettuce and tomato and cucumbers and spinach and olives and hot peppers and red wine vinegar, and they'll toast it for you, and it's good. So 
Step one is just check out the possibility. Uh-huh. Step two is when you are ready and you know the vegan foods that you actually enjoy, do a three-week test drive where for three weeks it's all vegan all the time. And that will allow you to see how good your body feels this way, uh, eating this way, and it allows your tastes to adjust. And yet you haven't made any long-term commitment. After the 21 days, see how you feel, and almost everybody is so delighted with it, it's uh, very easy to go forward at that point. So I don't throw people in the deep end. I say, try these two steps, and it will really work wonders for you. Great. All the side effects are good ones. Sounds good. Uh, all right. That's... Well, thank you, Vance. It's really, really been nice to talk to you again. Lost Ignorance by the band Every Other Day 
Uh, band from Philly of uh, young people who got together in high school to start this band and uh, certainly are well on their way to uh, find their own uh, kind of unique sound and it's great to hear that uh, they have at least one vegetarian member Tara who I believe you heard singing there and so we're happy to showcase them here on VegCast they have pages on Facebook and Reverb Nation. We'll have those links in the show notes. Uh, and I just wanted to mention, because this uh, track has kind of a little bit of a prog rock feel with the, the uh, you know, triple meter and everything, uh, and some of the uh, interesting instrumentation, it almost reminds me of uh, some of the work done by the band Verdun, which, uh, of course, uh, has been headed by Neil Barnard, uh, the man who is our main guest today. And speaking of Dr. Barnard, and of course I would encourage uh, any every other day members who are unfamiliar with uh, Dr. Barnard's band to check out the VegCast uh, that we did on that uh, on the VegCast.com homepage. You can find that. But uh, turning back to Dr. Barnard, we have a feature coming up that is going to pick up on some of the uh, facts and science that uh, Dr. Barnard has already been uh, putting forward, and we're going to put forward what we call the science Our science fact for VegCast 119, trends in diet and Alzheimer's disease during the nutrition transition in Japan and developing countries. Changing to the Western diet increases risk of Alzheimer's disease. This is right up on Newswise of a paper published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, and it tells us that dramatic increases in Alzheimer's disease in Japan and significant increases in developing countries are linked to changes in national diets. The prevalence of Alzheimer's for those aged 65 years and older in Japan rose from 1% in 1985 to 7% in 2008. The article continues, in an effort to determine what might be the cause of this dramatic rise in Alzheimer's prevalence, an investigation of dietary changes in Japan was undertaken. Data for dietary supply were obtained from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. The largest changes between 1961 and 1985 included alcohol from 29.6 kilograms per person per year to 57 kilograms per person per year, and these numbers are going to continue to reflect kilograms per person per year. Animal fat from 5 to 35, meat from 7.6 to 33.7, energy from animal products from 249 calories per person per day to 580 calories per person per day, and rice from 113 kilograms per person per year to 69 kilograms per person per year, basically Uh, just about cutting the rice consumption in half. The mechanisms linking animal products and meat to risk of Alzheimer's include iron from meat, which increases oxidative stress, and arachidonic acid from meat, which can increase inflammation in the brain, and cholesterol from all animal products. Thus, this study suggests that the nutrition transition in Japan, i.e. switching from the traditional Japanese diet, with 15% of the energy derived from animal products and 42% from rice, toward the Western diet is associated with the rapid rise in Alzheimer's prevalence in Japan. Since the dietary supply factors have not changed appreciably since 1985, it may be the case that Alzheimer's prevalence rates in Japan have reached a peak and will not increase further. In addition, unless 
The dietary pattern in Japan returns to the traditional Japanese diet. Alzheimer's rates in Japan will not decrease. And finally, the important message from this study, it says, is that Alzheimer's rates globally, uh, it also makes reference to another similar study uh, looking at different countries, globally are strongly linked to diet, especially in midlife, and that unless per capita consumption of animal products and total energy, uh, that's, you know, total calories, is reduced, Alzheimer's rates will continue to remain high. And not a lot more to add to that other than to say uh, we've pretty much uh, heard Dr. Barnard's take on that. And uh, obviously he's done a lot of peer-reviewed science himself. This is another peer-reviewed study that uh, essentially backs up everything that uh, he's saying about that. So I hope that uh, anybody out there who is still uh, you know, blithely consuming any animal products, uh, whether or not you're concerned about the animals from which uh, those products come, maybe you will be concerned about your ability to be concerned in the future. Think about it now while you still have the chance, and that's an imperative statement that comes to you straight out of this science fact. All right, we are about wrapping up VegCast 119. Uh, just as a parenthetical note, that podcast that I mentioned, the VegCast featuring Dr. Barnard and the band Verdun, that's VegCast 5. If you want to go check that out, and uh, we've got some interesting uh, events and things, uh, developments coming up here in Philly in October. hope to be telling you about those just very quickly. Fran Costigan will be in town on October 25th uh, to uh, do a signing of her book, Vegan Chocolate. Uh, that's out in Bryn Mawr, and uh, also sometime in October, looking forward to the opening of a new second location of Hip City Veg. So uh, we will be back uh, talking about uh, all kinds of vegetarian things then, but right now, uh, we're pretty much out of here. Okay, that is it. Thanks to our sponsor, Tofurky, making delicious, innovative, and affordable meat alternatives from non-GMO organic soy since 1980. Thanks to Dr. Neil Barnard for talking with us about Power Foods for the Brain and for letting us uh, replay this interview that we did for V for Veg. Check out V for Veg also at fully.com slash V for Veg. Thanks to every other day for giving us a track we could play on this podcast. And thanks to you, the VegCast listener, for downloading and subscribing. We will be back again in October, but until that time, get out there and live like you mean it. Veg-cast.